I've had the opportunity to address a lot of ag groups in general. This is the first time I've gotten to address um, peanut growers as an association. And this is important to me and to our district because we've seen a, a, a pretty good increase in peanut acres um, in northeast Arkansas. And there's a little town not far from my hometown. It's called Goober Town. And everybody talks about Goober Town. It's a little wide spot in the road now, but at one point in time, there was a reason it was called Goober Town. Years ago, there were a lot of uh, peanuts grown in and around that area, and, and that was sort of central to that, to that peanut area. So this little town emerged as Goober Town. Now you can get a candy bar and, a, and, and fill up your car with gas, but that's about all you can do in Goober Town anymore. Hopefully we'll change that and we'll start to see... Uh, an increase in peanut acres. I think that's good for the industry. It's good for the country. And, and uh, so there's a lot of positives uh, associated with some of the changes that have been made with regard to farm policy and, and uh, how it impacts peanut growers. So I thought about this, as I mentioned this morning, I, I got a chance to talk with a few people before I came up here. And I don't want to talk about policy. Y'all know more about peanut policy than I'll ever know. I want to talk about how we got there and how we kind of continue to advocate for farmers in general, but in specific, uh, specifically how, how farm policy impacts crops like peanuts and rice and why that alliance is so important. Um, there is a geographic prerogative there, certainly, but there is a, the fact that there are very limited acres. Um, makes makes a, a really good opportunity to collaborate between crops and, and one of the, the I think weaknesses of the ag industry in general has been finding those opportunities and capitalizing on, on those opportunities to collaborate, uh, inter-commodity uh, collaborations, if you will. And, and that's one of the challenges I think we face. But let me give you a little bit of background. Um, you know, we passed two farm bills in the last uh, three or four years, and one of them actually made it to the floor. And, and, you, and you, I'm not, I know that you're here today, you're probably a little more... Um, policy-oriented uh, and probably paying a lot more attention than the average Joe uh, on, on how these policies emerge and materialize. It was, a, it was quite a heavy lift um, to get a farm bill in this environment. Start off by calling it a farm bill. And people were, were very, um, I think it's, I think it's a, probably not a fair term to call it a farm bill. And I, I, I advocated and will continue to advocate for um, what I consider to be probably a better term for it is a USDA reauthorization. We talk about that and we talk about our defense uh, bill, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act that we do every year, essentially reauthorizes Department of Defense policies and so on. Well, where we had a little disconnect, obviously, is uh, between the nutrition title and the commodity title. And there's a reason for that. The reason is simply politics aside, policy is driven by geography. There's an ideological bent to that, certainly. But geographically, it's hard for people to get together and understand why it's in their interest to support peanut farmers, why it's in their interest to support farmers in general. We have generations of kids today that think their food comes from the Walmart shelf. They have no idea. In fact, their parents don't have any idea. I live in a town of 72,000 uh, roughly in the heart of what is some of the most productive farmland in the country, if not the world. It is the rice belt, the heart of the rice belt. We're surrounded by rice fields. 
And the only thing that most people in that town of 72,000 equate those rice fields as uh, that's duck hunting uh, habitat. It's not necessarily about the fact that there's billions of dollars of economic impact that provides their jobs as ancillary benefit to what farmers do and what farmers produce. Not to mention the fact that you know the United States continues to be um, to, to produce the safest, cheapest, most abundant food supply for our 300 million plus the rest of the world. Most people don't know that. Most people don't have that conversation. Most people just want to know that when they go to the grocery store, they can get their you know jar of peanut butter and they can get a bag of rice. And sometimes they uh, you know might read the label, but more than anything, they want to know that it's there when, when they need it and that they can afford it. And we're very blessed in this country that we can actually offer that, and you guys are integral. So the policy, as you see, affects you directly, but we have a real geographic disconnect. And so back to my point, why does anybody in Cleveland care about reauthorizing the commodity title of the Farm Bill when you know, they're not interested in farming. Why is anybody in, in Chicago? Why is anybody in, you know, some big city anywhere? And they may not understand the connection between agriculture and, and the consumer. That's where the industry has probably fallen short. I'm a former ag broadcaster, and one of the challenges I had and, and continue to have is trying to get the industry to bridge the gap between production agriculture and consumption because it's all part of the agricultural food chain. So you've seen the bumper stickers, if you eat, you're involved in agriculture. We all know that. You're involved in agriculture, and that resonates with you uh, because that's how you derive your living. But when we see the kind of policies that emanate from Washington that are geographically driven, that create a problem for you, and I'll talk about two, and one of them is simply the farm bill. You see the nutrition title and the commodity title, sometimes they don't gee-haw. Um, because people say, well, this, is nothing, this isn't really a farm bill, it's a nutrition bill. Only 15% of the total authorization went to production agriculture and about 80% um, went to nutrition programs. That's, that's, I can't argue those numbers. But the reason that they're, they're, they're coupled is because this is, in the bigger sense, it's a USDA reauthorization. I think that's the way we ought to look at it, and that's the way we ought to move that policy going forward, and we can hopefully tamp down some of that geographic disparity that prevents the ease of, of moving a farm bill, which historically hasn't been as difficult as this one's been. Um, now, on policy, you, I think you all fared out fairly well in this environment, given everything that uh, could have happened. It wasn't a time to go spike the football and, and do an end zone dance. I'm, I, I will certainly not say that. I'm glad we got it done. It was a large compromise. It was difficult for our farmers in the Mid-South uh, region of Arkansas, Mississippi, Southeast Missouri, particularly, and that's the Rice Belt. Um, but it was satisfactory. We could have done better maybe, uh, but, but we have these geographic disparities that exist. So the point is, let's talk about some of the other things beyond farm policy that you should be concerned about. I know you are concerned about it probably on your radar screen. Clean waters of the U.S., um, the Endangered Species Act. Both of these will, will potentially could have, and if, if adopted, uh, will have huge negative impact on your ability to produce 
the cheapest, safest, most abundant food supply in the world. We're advocating strongly for a bill that I've adopted that's that's would hopefully restrain the Endangered Species Act and make that more workable. I think we all have. Look, I, I call farmers. We we, we see uh, environmental activists. You guys deal with that every day. I call farmers active environmentalists. You guys are out there every single day making sure that you're implementing conservation. Uh, procedures and policies and so on as sort of a de facto way of doing things because you derive your income from uh, from the land. It's in your interest to be an active environmentalist. It's in your interest to be a conservationist. So when you see somebody from the Sierra Club pointing to your farm and say you're not doing it right, you have every reason and every right to bristle at the notion that somebody from the West Coast can come into uh, your farm area and say this is this is how it should be done and we're going to restrict your ability to do it the way you've always done it because we don't think you're a good enough conservationist or an environmentalist. We've got a problem with that. The Endangered Species Act is Exhibit A. Critical habitat designation is, is expanding. The folks out west have dealt with it for years and years and years. It's coming soon to a theater near you. Um, in Arkansas, we've seen an expansion or an attempt at an expansion of critical habitat designation that will affect 41% of the state. That will essentially create some buffers that would shut down economic activity and farming activity. And we don't even know the full uh, economic impact. And the reason we don't, because I got them to admit it in committee hearing, they don't do economic impact surveys to determine whether or not it's in the interest of the people to expand a critical habitat designation. So this is what we're up against. Clean waters of the U.S. If that's not on your radar screen, it should be. Um, the heart of this argument about, we all want clean water. I mean, come on. The idea that, that somehow you don't want clean water. Really? Uh, do, do we really need to have that debate? No, we don't. The problem is, how clean does it need to be? When you, when you see a, um, plants that utilize water and then discharge it back into a waterway that's cleaner and more pristine than the, than the waterway itself, I think we've achieved a clean water standard there. But what they're trying to do now is say that any regulated waterway, if they can demonstrate significant nexus as a result of a, a Supreme Court opinion that was rendered by Justice Kennedy, significant nexus will determine whether or not your stock pond is a regulated waterway, whether or not your irrigation water, a tailwater recovery system, or you know, uh, irrigation water on a rice field, whether or not that becomes a regulated body of water. So we had a hearing about this two or three weeks ago, and, and we had uh, the deputy director of the EPA and the undersecretary for the Corps of Engineers, and they're collaborating on clean waters of the U.S. That in and of itself should be troubling to you. Um, the Corps of Engineers has historically been an agency we could work with, not necessarily the easiest to work with. They're not the problem. The problem is when you go to the Corps to get a permit, they have a public comment period, and generally speaking, nine times out of ten, EPA is going to come in and weigh in and register a negative public comment to prevent a 404 permit from being issued, but I digress. The point is, now we have these two agencies collaborating on 
clean waters of the U.S. Waters of the U.S. So we've turned the core into a regulatory agency. Further, uh, the NRCS has been looped in. And now, historically, you as farmers have had a good relationship with the NRCS as a consulting agency, as an agency that provided cost sharing for things like uh, uh, tailwater recovery that I mentioned before. If you want to utilize or build a construct a reservoir for irrigation on your farm, you could utilize the NRCS as, as a, a technical resource and then even a cost sharing resource. So now what we're doing is changing the dynamic and the relationship that's existed between farmers and the NRCS by bringing NRCS into this triad, if you will, of, of regulatory agencies, the EPA, the core, and the NRCS, all part of this picture and all part of the package that's geared toward implementing waters of the U.S. And at the heart of it, significant nexus. So let me just break this down. If you don't already know, significant nexus is, is the crux of the whole waters of the U.S. debate. And that is if an agency, in their opinion, can demonstrate subjectively that there is a significant nexus between this waterway and a regulated waterway, that waterway then becomes regulated. Now let me, let me give you an example. And I made this, this point in a hearing and did not get even close to an adequate answer. About three, four weeks ago, we had a rain event in northeast Arkansas. In the city of Jonesboro, where I live, we had, in about a 36-hour period, we had 13, 14 inches of rainfall in and around that area. Now, I, I made this point to both the EPA administrator and the, the undersecretary for the Corps. If that water, if, that, if a swimming pool in my neighborhood spills over into a ditch and that ditch discharges into another ditch that's connected or discharging into a regulated waterway, how far back are we going to go to demonstrate a significant nexus? And who actually makes the determination and under what criteria for if a significant nexus exists to the degree that that swimming pool would then become a regulated waterway. Now, is that a stretch? Of course they say that's a stretch. It says right here specifically swimming pools, swimming pools are ex exempt from that regulation. However, if they can demonstrate a significant nexus, can they tell me that that swimming pool is no longer regulated waterway or is now a regulated waterway? And the answer was no. They couldn't and wouldn't. So they're reserving the right to utilize significant nexus at their discretion with great ambiguity and subjectivity. This is why we should be concerned about this new rule in waters of the U.S. It has the potential to have an extremely drastic impact on how you farm. Most of you are not just peanut farmers. Most of you have some diverse operations cattle operations, poultry operations, cotton, whatever. Um, it's certainly going to impact the way you farm. It's going to impact your management decisions. It's going to impact compliance costs. I had an ag business professor tell me back in 1995 or 6, whatever it was, that the, the growth industry of the future was going to be com uh, compliance. And I said, in what industry? He says, it doesn't matter what industry. Compliance will be the so go get a law degree and specialize in compliance, and you'll probably never go hungry. 
it's going to choke our economy to the extent that it's going to make it much more difficult for you to thrive. So all that to say, those are the bad things that are going on in Washington. There's some good things going on in Washington, too. We're trying to make some progress on some things to incentivize young people to get into farming. We've got an issue with the mean age of farmers somewhere in the mid-50s. That's troubling. When we talk about sustainability in agriculture, we ought to be thinking about sustainability in, in how we uh, recruit and retain young people and get them to sustain their position in production agriculture. There's some ways we can do that through incentivizing young beginning farmers and ranchers. We're doing that with a student loan bill. We're trying to move through education and workforce that would allow a, a much more efficient payback method for student loans. We have that bill in draft form. We've got a lot of support for it. Both the Ag uh, Committee Chairman and the Committee on Education and Workforce Chairman support it. And it would provide a great deal of relief to uh, kids who would come back to the farm and maybe saddled with student loan debt. This is an efficient way for them to pay that back at lower interest and quickly uh, get back into a, a more productive role as opposed to being saddled with student loan debt. So we're working that. Uh, some other things that, that I've been working on for since I got to Congress, one of them is uh, what we call the frame account, which is essentially uh, like an HSA for farmers. Every farmer I've talked to said if they could fund that account today, they would. Some tax incentives for you to put money into account that's held out so you can essentially self-fund a disaster on your farm while you're waiting for a declaration or while you're waiting for an adjustment to take place. And in the interim, could mean the difference between you being in business next year and not being in business next year. And so uh, the nuts and bolts of that, are, it's fairly, uh, fairly involved, but suffice it to say, you'd get a tax benefit for uh, putting up to $50,000 a year, capped at $50,000, um, and utilizing that on an ongoing basis to cash flow your operation in the event that your farm sustains some sort of a of loss or disaster. Now here's the, the rub, is that we may not get a federal disaster declaration that affects you, but to you that's a disaster and you still need to be farming next year. So if you had to wait around for the state or the federal to, to make that declaration, you might not be in business. This empowers you to take that matter into your own hands while you're waiting for a, a claim on crop insurance or while you're waiting for a, a, a disaster declaration and a supplemental appropriation which may or may not happen or an emergency disaster loan which may or may not happen. This could be the difference between you being in business uh, next year and not being in business next year. The idea is that we want to make sure that we're implementing policies that keep farmers producing. It's not necessarily about making a profit every single year, but ensuring that a safety net exists so that you're in business next year. So sustainability in the workforce, sustainability in, in policy that is driven toward uh, making sure that there's a safety net for farmers uh, in an environment where it's where you hear people talk about we need a free market for for farmers I'll agree with that probably will never happen and until it happens we have to have policies in place that allow for you to compete in the global marketplace so that's what I'm about that's what the Ag Committee has been about and um, I, I probably talked way too long but I, I just wanted to let you know that the glass is half full um, all the, the EPA issues aside and, and some of the challenges that we face, um, I have so much confidence and respect for American producers 
that um, you know you can't help but be optimistic in, in that you can continue to produce at the level that you do and provide for the well-being of billions of people around the world. So Sir. thank you all. Appreciate it.